Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to Blockhead. Today's guest, Steve Conley, our old friend from early on in the podcast, has come back today to talk not only about his great webcomic, The Middle Age, and the great success he's had with that Eisner Award nominee, Ringo Award nominee, two great Kickstarters, both really successful and wonderful books, and, and 12,000 readers on on Webtoons canvases well as probably thousands more elsewhere uh steve is here to talk about his latest kickstarter he's gone back to the archives and brought out his first webcomic which is just as astounding oh, that's the key word astounding just as astounding as the middle ages just as beautiful but in a different way astounding space thrills and you can get a hold of a beautiful beautiful book a great package bringing together the first story arc from this terrific classic webcomic Astounding Space Thrills by going to Kickstarter and contributing astoundingspacethrills.com slash Kickstarter Steve has a Kickstarter up now it's going on through I think May 26th today's the 10th it's got 16 days more to go be sure to head over there. You do not want to miss this. This is this is great stuff. It's not just that it's a classic webcomic. It's a beautiful webcomic. One of the first out there, and even back then, it was it was unique, and people were, were going to it. He had 3,000 subscribers back then, and, uh, and for good reason, because it's a great piece of work, and you're just going to love it. So head on over to Kickstarter, well, actually, by via astoundingspacethrills.com slash Kickstarter. That's right, astoundingspacethrills.com slash Kickstarter. Uh, there's some great, great stretch goals. There's the, the some great rewards. It's just all together, and plus a really, really cool T-shirt. So uh, do your best, you know, head on over there. You're, you're just not going to be disappointed you're gonna love it i feel really great recommending this to you so make sure astoundingspacethrills.com slash kickstarter uh steve and i go through we have a long conversation about just a million different things and as as always is going to happen with steve because steve is just such a, a talented uh, really virtuosic cartoonist who's got great skills in a variety of area, areas and plus he's just uh, really so smart and funny and, and great to talk to and so every time we talk we have this wide ranging conversation which is what we have today and uh, it goes through a lot of territory and then at the end there's a treat for those of you who are, who are wondering geez how can I do what Steve Conley's done and run five successful Kickstarters well well, Steve shares some of his secrets with us, so be sure to stick around for that, okay? Uh, because we can all pick up a thing or two from Steve Conley. Again, five five successful Kickstarters. Um, there's a lot to learn there. 
Hey, before we get into this great conversation, be sure to head on over to Instagram. Follow me at GreenScreenComic. Check out GreenScreen, my latest project on Webtoons, Canvas, and Tapas. Okay, you can follow it there. GreenScreen is about an actress who falls into a universe called the Cineverse where every movie is a real world. And uh, it's lots of fun. So be sure to check it out on Instagram at GreenScreenComic or on Webtoons, Canvas, or Tapas. And now let's get into it with Steve, Steve Conley, and myself in conversation. But here we are, settling in uh, <laughs> after multiple attempts, right? Uh, 73rd time's the charm. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the last time was just ter- terrible. We had, you know, terrible uh, internet problems and phone problems all day. Mm. And... Uh, it didn't really clear up until the uh, next day, so that's rare for us. We don't get that many, that much trouble, usually. I've heard so many horror stories from podcasters who say, "Oh, I had this great interview with someone, and it didn't get recorded for some reason." Oh, oh, it's, it feels like such a nightmare. It it can be, you know. Uh, I so love what you're doing. I'm so glad you're doing it. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I mean, apart from the episodes with me in it, I think what you're you're creating. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, evergreen content that people will be thank will for for generations will be thankful that it exists. Well, you know, I, I think I'm one of many, you know, out there who are doing stuff like this, and uh, certainly I'm I don't have as big an audience as some do, but I, I'm what I'm really glad about is that I get, you know, all of us as cartoonists we work alone, and in our studios, and we and especially since conventions are on hold you know we're locked in our studios and and covid and everything right we we just don't communicate that often because our work is very private and uh and so this is an opportunity to connect with cartoonists who i've never had the chance to connect with before i don't i don't know about you but i'm always one of those guys who you know i'm a wallflower you know when it comes to parties when it comes to you know, events like conventions or things. I'm not somebody to go introduce myself to a lot of people, unless I have some reason. You know, like like a podcast, and uh, and so it gives me this opportunity to talk to people I I would love to talk to just about what we love. You know, which is cartooning, and and um, that's a, that's just a great just a great thing. You know, in terms of self help as well as anything else. You still there? Steve, don't tell me I lost you. Uh-oh. Hello, Steve. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's pause this. And stop recording. It's like I've got the recording thing out again. This is just like part and parcel of what we have to go through, I think, to get this, this interview done. Today. <laughs> I'm very this sorry is... because I, I've already put my phone on uh, airplane mode. You know, try to make sure that there's no no uh, uh, distractions or background sounds. And then my mail beeped, and I'm like, oh gosh! I, so I, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> it's like it's like we're being tested, you know, like <laughs> like uh, like Sir Quimp or something being put through our our paces, right? Uh, <laughs> You know, I think it's kind of like uh, this is one of those things. You got the the thirteen rings of fire or something. <laughs> you, know? 
you know, in order to get this. We really want this interview. <laughs> we want this interview so bad. Yeah, here I was pontificating about, you know, how great it was to talk to cartoonists and all of that, you know, and and you're not even there. <laughs> well, I know I, 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 it was only it was like less than a minute. Less than, I mean, 30 seconds, maybe. I think it must have beeped or something on your end saying, hey, this this jerk just vanished. No, uh, I, I said, so what do you think about that, Steve? And it, was, it was dead silence. And I was like, hey, wait a minute. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm on air by myself. Oh, okay. That's all right. Uh, but that's okay. I'm used to, I'm a teacher. I'm used to not being listened to. <laughs> oh, my God. Right? Oh, gosh. Well, anyway, here we are. Steve Conley, welcome back to Blockhead. It's so great to have you here with us today. Thanks so much, Jeff. Yeah, it's this is wonderful. And it's a kind of celebration. And as I said, the last time we tried to do this, we were going to do this in, you know, in support of your Kickstarter to get people to go and, and uh, contribute to this great Kickstarter for Astounding Space Thrills. And what are we doing instead? We're doing a victory lap because, boy, oh, boy, I think you've unlocked just about every stretch goal uh, possible on that Kickstarter. It's been amazing. What? In an hour, it was funded. That was very surprising. It's it was so surprising. Every Kickstarter starts with kind of this. When I'm when I'm going to launch a Kickstarter, it's it's like this is either going to be great or you know this will be this this could be great or it will fail miserably. And uh, uh, this one, I really didn't know what to expect of it. I the Middle Age is my current project. I've been working on that for it'll be five years in July. Wow. And that's where all my attention is going, and that's where I've got readers and Patreon support. But there was this other project I started doing in the '90s, my first web comic astounding space thrills and i thought it's a novelty i would love to get it back in print it was meant to be in print from the beginning or at least i designed the pieces to be in print from the beginning and i just want to have this on the shelf uh, mm -hmm. i feel like print is the most long-term archival form of our oh, medium yeah. and uh, as i can tell from like digging through old files like you know pieces go missing and initially, when I was doing Astounding Space Thrills, I thought, okay, I've got a, I've got a better format than print because I'm emailing it to 3,000 people every day. My work will survive on 3,000 hard drives. <laughs> but that was, it's low resolution, files from 1998. Mm -hmm. Can people open them? Are they on some zip drive somewhere? You know, uh, mm -hmm. so they're basically sending it out into the ether and not knowing if they survive. So finally getting them in print was this kind of dream of mine from the beginning. And it just took forever. Uh, uh, other things were distracting me. And, and then at some point when I stopped doing astounding space thr thrills, I thought, do people even remember this thing? Mm -hmm. And so when I launched the Kickstarter and the response was overwhelming, funded in an hour, yeah. uh, I was blown away. I, I, cause I, I tried to make everything extremely conservative, very, uh, non-ambitious. Like let's start, have a low, th low goal, a mm -hmm. low price point, you know, I don't expect to make much money from this. I'm not making a lot per book, per sale, but mm -hmm. I, I was just overwhelmed. I mean, the response has been so kind. Well, it, it's so exciting, too. Uh, to have something like that happen has just got to be so gratifying. Uh, do you have any idea? Are these folks who are people who are following the middle age? It seems like it. I, it, I think there was a strength... Of launching the middle age and that i did have readers who's followed my career for 20 years who were fans of astounding space thrills back in the day and started reading the middle age and was like we're like why does this why is steve drawing people with heads that look like that now what happened to steve 
why is it so much more cartoony? I think there were people who liked my writing and but preferred a more classic cartooning style. I think the middle age was a bit of a a hurdle for them to jump through. Why, you know, why is again, why are the heads shaped like that? Why why is he abstracting? Why do characters only have four fingers? Uh, and uh, so I was so I do think some of the astounding space thrills people came along through all my various projects through the years. But I just, you know, and again, we're not talking about setting the world on fire. We're not talking about 100,000 supporters. I'm approaching 200 supporters for this. But it's amazing that what two, what just 200 or 1,000 supporters can do for an independent cartoonist nowadays. Oh, what, a, what, a, what a successful, thriving career you can have with, with just a loyal following of dedicated readers who love what you do. Or, well, isn't that exciting? I mean, th that's an exciting thought, too. And I have to tell you, Steve, you know, as somebody who is, well, you know, I think you know this. Um, I really admire what you've done and how you've built your career. And I kind of see it as a template for not only myself, but also for others who are trying to build a career in comics as an independent cartoonist. And the idea that, you know, 200 people, 250 people is by traditional standards, you know, very, very small. But the fact that, you know, you can build a career, you know, do a, 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 I don't know how big of a living, but you can do a decent living. You can support your work through that kind of readership. And then hopefully those people, you know, like, for example, with the middle age, you know, it's been noticed by the Eisner committees. It's been noticed by the Ringo award committees. Um, you know, the, the reach of that can be really much wider than it sounds like it would be, you know? And so I, I think there's not only, you know, those people who will buy the book, but there's also those people who are keeping up with it online and those people who are also getting clued into it by other people, word of mouth spreads on the internet, you know, fairly quickly. And so I, I think, it, you know, contributions aside uh, and, and those numbers aside, I think its impact can be much greater than that. Um, you know, when you have that kind of fan base. Yeah, I, I think we can really, so I, I don't know who said it first, but if you had a thousand fans willing to support you with a hundred dollars a year, and mm -hmm. you'd be doing great. Oh my uh, gosh! Yeah. Um, I think if you, I think if you break it down, like someone, someone's asking me, how do you become successful with web comics? And and I, I say, okay, how do you achieve success in web comics? Is you just you define success as something achievable. Mm -hmm. And I think once you define it as, I really just need 500 people to support this over the course of six months in some fashion or another, and 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 also recognize it's a long, you you have to it's a marathon such a cliche but it's a marathon not a sprint mm -hmm. there was a cartoonist who had said that reading reading i don't know cerebus around mm -hmm. around issue 64 mm -hmm. so he had been at it for five years at that point yeah. maybe six years yeah. that's the kind of thinking we have to have that there are going to be far more people in the world have not heard of us than have right and right. so every day goes by a handful of more people discover you and that's the crazy great part that there's so much potential. I mean, that's what to me, that's what all these projects feel like, whether it's green screen, your project or mine. It the potential is there, mm -hmm. you know, you any day of the week, one or two more people can find you. And if during the course of that week, one or two become dedicated readers who want to support you and keep this project going, it changes your world. Yeah. Uh, so it's exciting. And, 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 uh, 
maybe daunting if you think about it too much, but uh, uh, I, I just love the potential of it and the, the payoff for staying with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you've been at the middle age now for five years and you've got, let's see, you, you started off. Well, what kind of audience base did you have like in the first six months or first year even? Uh, modest. I got really lucky about nine months in, it was nominated for an Eisner award. Um, Uh so it was, so that felt like validation in a way, because when I launched it, I I launched it with a Patreon. That's Mm -hmm. another thing I suggest people do is that if you have a, you know, even a Patreon support of one or two people, it, it becomes an obligation. You, Mm -hmm. you, in America, you can just, you know, everything has to make you money. And, you know, every, the only thing that can be justified is something that, oh, I got to work. Work is the only thing that you're allowed to do. And uh, that's so true. And so if even if it's a Patreon supporter of two dollars, well, I don't want to lose that two dollars. I'm going to go work on my comic. And mm-hmm. uh, great. So I, I had a few supporters early on, and that felt great because within the first few months of the middle age, it made more money than my previous comic project had. Uh, and, you know, that's pretty cool. I mean, yeah, and, you know, and that and not all, and the previous project didn't make a lot of money, but the idea is that Patreon with just a little bit of support and very little overhead that you can make, you know, pay your cable bill, right? Uh, start off small, pay your Disney Plus bill, and right. uh, and and oh. let it grow and just keep at it. And the the arc, the greater, the deeper your archive of work, the well, more dedicated people can can be to it. I haven't even finished my first story arc yet, and I feel like. Uh, I've, I've, so it's and partly, I feel like I, I've gotten more attention than I deserve. Uh, well, that's interesting. You say you haven't fin- finished the, in the, in the middle age we're talking about, you haven't finished the first story arc yet. That's, that's amazing. Cause we're already two books in and how many more strips on top of that? Um, so yeah, that's amazing. Right. Um, to think about that and it's five years in, how often are you updating the middle age? Cause is it, is it happening every week? infrequently right now it was through 2019 it was twice a week through Mm. 2020 and the pandemic it got down to about weekly and this year has been a struggle and the last week i was counting right back just as i don't know it's going to sound like a sad sack story but just as i was getting back into the swing of things my ipad died right and and there's a new ipad weeks away and so i spent days trying to figure out how to revive and keep my other ipad going long enough that i could get the new model right and it was and I lost some work. I, I, I have really good backups of all my middle age work. I mean, I don't I don't keep stuff on the iPad, um, but the work that I had been doing on the next episode was lost, mm-hmm. and so so I basically lost a day and a half of work. And so I, I don't know. So I got the, I picked up a new iPad a couple of days ago and spent an afternoon loading all the new color pa- all my color palettes back, all my templates back, my brushes back, and so now I'm finally back up to it again. So as of today, I'm going to be posting, and this is. Uh, May seventh, I'll be yeah. uploading a uh, the first drawing from the new iPad, and uh, it's an improvement over what I had drawn before. <laughs> so, it, the previous episode, the artwork that I lost, it was fine, and I was really happy with it. But the new one's better, and uh, it's not not dedicated to the device. That's just a philosophy of every time something crashes, getting a second chance in life of doing anything. <laughs> you tend to do a better job, and so. Uh, I'm rambling again, Jeff, just like the first well, man, you get, you No, know, it's great. It's great. And, and you know, I just went through the same thing. And I think I talked about it on the podcast last episode or the one before. I don't remember now. But anyway, 
we went through the same thing. It was a trauma, but I've recovered. I hope you have too. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see if this, so the next episode that I upload will be episode 250. I'm wondering if there's going to be any visible difference between the two. Because I mean, there's a lot of things that could change, like the way Procreate handles the brushes, where he, mm-hmm. the way new Apple Pencil sensitivity touches the screen, the way yeah. uh, even the color temperature of the screen tends to be more sensitive than my, my I have, you know, I was using a 2015 iPad Pro. So okay. basically the first generation of it has mm-hmm. been, I'm on the fourth now, and now they have things where it, the temperature of the screen will change. Uh, the mm-hmm. color temperature will change based on the environment you're in. And so will that affect my colors? Will that affect so much right. of it? I'm, I, for all I know, there'll be a, a stark contrast between 249 and 250. And <laughs> We'll have to see. I'll look forward to seeing it. If I, if I notice any difference, I'll, I'll message you. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So let's talk about the Kickstarter. Let's talk about Astounding Space Thrills. Um, because... You know, this is this is kind of interesting. It's a long and circuitous route um, to this point, and and it's amazing. But I, that I'm not sure that people remember it. It's I think people are aware of you and the quality of work you do. Plus, I've got to tell you, the cover for this sucker just looks beautiful. I mean, oh. wow! It it just blew my socks off the minute I saw it. I was like, man, I have to have that. And, uh, you know, and I think a lot of people responded the same way. The cover is just gorgeous. You, you're dying to get that book, you know, just for the cover alone. But <laughs> I can't wait to, you know, the images that you put up on the Kickstarter also just look fantastic. So I think there was a lot of that, you know, among the current audience, um, because I'm a member of your current, current audience, too. So I was just like excited to see how great this looks and uh, and and how exciting I think it is whether it's old or new material to see Steve Conley doing something, you know, um, that is a, a, again, a different genre, you know, than the middle age. Yeah. That that's, that's a fascinating point. The genre shift, there was a sense that whenever I've done a different project, I've, I've jumped genres and I feel like I lose people on every jump because it's sort of like, I think of, I think of genre as a, as like, uh, uh, the culture with related to food like someone will say i'm in the mood for something italian or i'm in the mood for some mexican food or something like that well they'll say i have this concept and i feel like genre functions the same way where i'm in the mood for a mystery or i'm in the mood for a drama and so i don't know it's sort of like suddenly having an italian restaurant and serving thai food you know i, I, I i've got this audience who come in for a specific thing and now suddenly i want to serve them something that they were hankering for <laughs> And I'm like, no, well, it's the same. It's the same chef. A lot of the same ingredients. I'm just mixing them differently. And, but still, it's uh, people. I, I can feel people pull back a little bit. But, but I don't know how many people remember astounding space thrills either. I, I, as I've said it was very popular on mm-hmm. the internet when the internet wasn't very popular. You're right when the internet was young. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, it, so I, I don't know. It people were very nice. I, I'm doing something really fun, which is. I had a mailing list of 3,000 people who I would email the comic strip to every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Pretty I ran cool. through a service that would strip out dead, definitely dead uh, domain names, things like that. And that reduced the list down to about 600 people. Wow. And I've been emailing them every day. Not, not the same 600, like 30 of them every day during the campaign. Because usually during the middle of a Kickstarter campaign, the creator is just sort of twiddling their thumbs and you know, chewing on their computer screen, trying to figure out what other thing they can do to possibly gin up more interest. 
and I ha so I actually have this little project I can do during the middle of my Kickstarter campaign to feel like I'm doing something, even if uh, even if one out of ten bounce back anyway. I haven't heard back from any of those people, and I have noticed that some of them are uh, they're clearly still readers of my new stuff. Uh, oh. But but I'm I'm sending it to their AOL address or something like that. Yeah. I recognize their name. Uh, How many so, people still have that AOL account? I wonder. Uh, or or access. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. But they they in some cases, if the account has been disabled, I get a notification. But maybe they'll see it before the campaign ends. I don't know. Yeah. It, it it feels nice to reach out to people one at a time and not spam them. I'm not like doing a big blind CC. I'm sending a personal note to each person. Right. Um, and that's and, pretty uh, cool. That's that's it's pretty rare. It's got to be very time consuming too. Yeah, it takes me about an hour. Uh -huh. um, but you know, they, they were lovely enough to sign up for the comic strip Years back in the twentieth century, and I, I feel nice to reach out to them again. Man, wow! Thinking about that—that's a long time ago. Uh, and and you know, back in the early days of the internet and and small press, it was kind of a, an interesting moment. And I think we've talked about this before, but you know, there was this like breakthrough moment where we thought, and I guess, you know, after 25 years, it's really borne out those ideas that this was a new vehicle for comics and comics were going to adapt to it and proliferate. And indeed really they have, you know, uh, I mean, in, in such a way, so many people have built up significant audiences you know, on the internet, um, whether through Instagram or Facebook or whatever, uh, social media really, I think, kicked that off exponentially in a lot of ways, um, making it available. But, um, you know, you, you, before I forget, though, you were talking about genre and, uh, and it's, it's interesting, the comics audience, it, there's a comics audience, I think, that, that is quite to go from one to another genre um you know and then there are some people who are focused solely on say superheroes and some people are focused solely on you know um uh, slice of life or auto bio stuff but then i think then there's there's other folks who are just like it's comics and i love all comics you know and so there's that quality to it there's also i think one of the things that's interesting about astounding space thrills that's different from the middle age is it's got one foot in, I don't want to call it nostalgia or retro, it but there, there are accoutrements of it that hearken to a kind of love of, of those old, you know, flash Gordon, um, comic strips and movie serials, star Wars, early star Wars, those first few years of star Wars uh, when it first came out and, and the connection those filmmakers made to, you know, those adventure movies of the past. There's that kind of element that I think it harkens to as well, um, that I think attracts a big audience. I mean, there's there's a big audience for that. I, I hope so. It, it's weird that it's kind of nostalgia on top of nostalgia on top of nostalgia. Uh but it's not entirely just nostalgia, you know, because it's also it was on the on, you know, it was on the Web. It was also something that was embracing new technology and new ways of storytelling. And its visuals are decidedly, you know, while they some of the forms harken back to, you know, earlier ideas about science fiction, illustration, EC Comics, maybe, uh, you know, Al Williamson, some stuff like that. There's also. Um, you know, it was embracing all of the new looks that were available through through working digitally. 
Yeah, it was it was fun back because I, I was pretty good with the, the available CGI tools at the time and environmental tools at the time. There was a program called Infinity, which I used daily to render reference material. And then also in this in Astounding Space Thrills, quite a few of the environments and the spaceships and things like that were are 3D rendered and trying to render them in a very bright style so that they match the bright style of the cartooning. It didn't feel jarring because a lot of a lot of times CGI can feel like you know, like you've slapped color forms characters on top of a painted background where there's a yeah. disconnect between the, the figure work and the environment. Mm -hmm. And I felt like this had done a pretty good job of marrying the material. Um, I, I kind of miss using using those tools. I've been out of 3D for like 15 years or so. Um, but wow. it, it the retro bit was uh, kind of a pushback against what had been what was popular at the time. It was always this kind of pushback of because I think when I was by the late '90s, early aughts, uh, CGI still hadn't really wasn't super great. Mm -hmm. uh, but basic shapes were easier to do. So like a, a classic old style rocket ship was a lot easier to build. Um, <laughs> the, the, there's a heroine in the story, Petra, and she has this basically pyramid-shaped vessel. And again, just a, a pyramidical shape was a lot easier to do with geometric tools and simple mapping of textures on it and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it was the, the retro thing was, a, a, and you saying things like earthlings instead of Terrans or whatever, um, was a much more fun way of writing. I, I, I just wanted to have fun with it. And, and, and there's a certain point of suspension of disbelief where I don't think I ever achieve it. I think, I think people can get caught up in the story, but I don't think at any point they stop thinking they're reading a comic and I don't mind with astounding space thrills anyway, to wink at them very often um, <laughs> and say, you know, earthlings and ray guns and rocket ships, not spaceships or star cruisers or all the fancy language that people wanted to do to kind of get away because they were embarrassed by Flash Gordon and they were embarrassed by Buck Rogers and the cheesy rockets with their with a sparkler sticking out of the back of them. Uh, oh, my and, gosh. So, well, you're talking about the movie serials now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but the, the, the stuff that inspired Star Wars, which was the stuff that inspired me, which was the stuff, you know, so it's 20 years, out, 25 years after Astounding Space Worlds, which was 25 years after Star Wars, which was 25 years after, you know, gosh knows, you know, uh, the, the comic strips of Alex Raymond. Um, I don't well, know. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, it, it, I have a great love, obviously, for for all of that stuff. For particularly for, I mean, like you on a any given Saturday, you might catch me watching Buster Crab in a Flash Gordon serial or Buck Rogers or something like that. And I, I have um, the IDW reprints of Alex Raymond's run on uh, Flash Gordon, which is just just astounding. You know, they printed them at the original size, and and mm. such a joy to behold, really, because it's just amazing. Um, but you know, of of the sources of uh, let's say sci-fi sci space opera uh, or space adventure um, accoutrements and looks and technology, you know, uh, a lot, I mean, it, in a lot of ways, it all harkens back to Buck Rogers and there's this terrific, uh, and Buck Rogers gets short shrift all the time, um, in discussions of these things, because, you know, Raymond just blew everybody out of the water with the beauty of his artwork. Uh, but if you go and, and the storytelling was much, even though it was still very steeped in genre and pretty ludicrous in a lot of ways, um, you go back to looking at Buck Rogers and 
and it's so ludicrous. It's like ridiculously weird and over the top. And and her, uh, what is it? Hermes Press put out two collections of Sunday Buck, Buck Rogers stuff, which are much, I think, much more satisfying than the daily stuff. And if you go back and look at those books, and particularly the books, um, I think that were the initial volume drawn by Russell Keaton, um, that, that it's who was an airplane airplane pilot actually uh they're they're just gorgeous in a weird kind of funky way and all of the the spaceships and stuff that were introduced then and um and then by uh i think who was the next guy who worked on this trip was his name jaeger uh, i'll have to look it up um yeah it might might have been jaeger oh no now i'm thinking of chuck jaeger um but it, anyway the the second the, all of those spaceships and stuff were, were a big part of the popularity and they're really kind of going back to look at them now um they're really so cool and they really did set a template that has been has proven to be so versatile and useful over and over and over again because they appear you know, in uh, your work, they appear also in partly because of the simplicity, as you're pointing out, but also they appear in Star Wars and, and a lot of the things that have come afterwards. It's some really great stuff. And it's really kind of unfortunately neglected um, Buck Rogers, the, particularly, again, those Sundays, because uh, they're really so off the wall, bizarre and uh, with and they make no narrative sense really whatsoever. <laughs> But they're so much fun because of it, you know. Uh, I mean, if you accept them for what they are and you start to get into them, they're really so strange that that they're a lot of fun. You know, one day you're like hanging around with, um, you know, uh, what is it, Buddy Daring and, and Allura and and uh, his companion. And they're talking to the mushroom people. And, you know, all of a sudden they're sent off for no apparent reason onto some other adventure. And it's really it's a bizarre set of comic strips i have to say but it, it, a lot it, always, of it always felt more like wizard of oz in terms of its kind of the non sequiturs and the uh anthropomorphism and the willingness to just be weird and crazy and or, or gulliver's travels or something like that it always felt like uh dreamlike in mm -hmm. a way which i loved and in the cartooning at least of the original buck rogers you know always makes me think more of Pete Baggy, Peter Bag than anybody else. You know, really? it, yeah, just the kind of it's expressive. It was it's really cartooning that just tries to I feel like getting the story across is more important than the rendering in a way. Uh -huh. You know, it's it's like communication and letting you know how the character feels matters most and then everything else uh, and, and maybe that's just because, in contrast, everything might, might feel more like Peter Bag next to Alex Raymond <laughs> than uh, so next to Alex Raymond, everything looks cartoony. Yeah. Uh, but it, to me, that's the in my head, I always kind of connected that willingness to uh, I don't know, just to, to entertain and get the to get the feeling across more than anything. And another big inspiration for me was the Dan Dare comics. Uh, oh, oh my gosh. He probably even more so. Dan Dare was a British, uh, a British comic, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Now that I think of it, I've only seen a couple of those, but now that you mention it, yeah. Oh, oh, oh so I, if you're listening to this podcast, pull up Dan Dare, uh, because uh, it's great stuff, really. Who was the artist on that? It was it was Frank Bellamy and Frank Hampson. Um, yeah. Uh, 
I'm drawing a blank on which one started. I think it was Hampson who started it. Um, I could get those backwards. Please forgive me, everyone in the UK. Um, <laughs> but a gorgeous comics, beautiful, beautifully painted. Uh, about again, it, it, it might as well be Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. Uh, much more modern-ish, mm-hmm. and like it, 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 it can find. I, I think the understanding of the solar system was a bit better understood by the time they were working because okay. it, they kind of kept themselves within the solar system and and like okay let's go to venus that's far enough away we don't have to travel to some missing planet mongo or <laughs> you know we're, let's let's cross let's cross five universes tonight they're using you know a lot of those early comics they totally butcher the science in general oh my gosh there's where, no whereas I, <laughs> whereas I feel like the the dan dare stuff while silly at least had a little more of a, a footing in what people knew at the time yeah um exactly yeah um and and the illustrations are are fantastic they're they're really glorious and now and um you know there's this volumetric quality but at the same time it's imbued with a kind of cartoony quality um and and as you were saying i think just the the integration of foreground background um the verisimilitude if you will of of the environment feels very much very much kind of like what you were doing in astounding space thrills oh i i I didn't get close to that i mean it might be closer to what i'm doing with the middle age then okay you know it like i feel like with the with the astounding space thrills it was still me getting a feel for it all of astounding space thrills was drawn with a mouse uh was it really yeah, it was all it was all drawn on a Mac, possibly a Mac laptop, I think, or a desktop, but with a mouse, millions of mouse clicks, oh. and it was all drawn in a vector program, and uh-huh. so I would that all the line work was done that way, and then oh. I would take the line work into Photoshop, which was back, which was around back then, and I would color it there with kind of a simple flat color, maybe one or two shades of of yeah. shadow or highlight, and uh, much much. I've had to redraw some of them for this Kickstarter because some of those files were lost. Right. I have like an old, old laptop that was able to run an emulator, which could then open up the old files. And I opened up some of them, the vector files. And so I was able to save some pieces and then recolor them. And it was was such a joy to color in flat colors as opposed to the kind of thing I do for the middle age where it'll take me a day and a half to properly color one page, but to kind of just slap color down and think of simple shadows. It was, really a treat well do you ever you know i mean i i hmm, i have this it's interesting because i think one of the things that people respond to in the middle age is just the the dimensionality uh of your color you know it's painted really it's the way it feels it's it's got this uh you know wonderful volumetric quality wonderful light uh and and it's really quite extraordinary in in those terms i mean the 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 sense of light that emanates throughout it is beautiful. And I think that's one of the things that people really responded to initially, you know, as you just look at the strip and you're just like, this is gorgeous. It's unbelievable. But at the same time, there is this quality, as you were saying about flat color that can be just so gratifying, I guess, like in an instantaneous kind of way. Um, and I'm thinking now of, of like the distinction, um, between, you know, painters like, like, uh, you know, I was, uh, I'm a big fan of 20th century modernist, modernist art and particularly, you know, in a lot of ways, um, 
a lot of things that happened that were made their way into the commercial art world world. So, and, um, and applications of modernist, you know, um, the kind of modernist movement towards simplicity and kind of the idea of purity in art making, you know, this, the reducing, um, your tools down to the essentials, you know, in a way that was part of that movement, uh, is something that I can really respond to. So, you know, the idea of flat color in painting, you know, I immediately think of, you know, people like Mondrian, but then later on, you know, the wonderful work of somebody like Ellsworth Kelly, which is just glorious. But so many people, you know, find it off-putting because it's so simple. But that kind of bold flat color just hits me in such a, like in an immediate way, you know, that I just, I just love. And, uh, and it's, it's fun to play with because in reducing your elements, right, you go through this process of, of kind of editing out anything that's extraneous in a way. And, and you've got to make sure that everything's sort of coordinated correctly. You know, other, if one little thing is off, it throws the whole thing off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. There's a yeah. Alex Toth line about make it so simple you can't cheat. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and like with the middle age, I definitely feel like I've I, I over render the color in kind of. I think it started partly as an apology to people that I'm cartooning. Like, oh, it, you know, <laughs> kind of like the characters got this simple head shape. So, but 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 don't worry, everybody. I'm gonna I'm really gonna color the heck out of it. Um, it it, it was it felt a little bit like that. But I, I totally get what you get what you're, what you're saying about color how i can love frank hampson and frank bellamy's work on dan dare but also love laura allred's colors oh and yeah how both of them speak to me and how in the with the right material how each one is so perfectly appropriate yes um, yes and, uh, and and that's what it comes down to the right material right i think so i think a lot of comics that don't work i don't want to say fail but they they don't maybe they don't click is because the art isn't right for the story where the because like we're talking about genre, I I tend to think that the style of cartooning functions as a second genre, where people say oh, I don't like country music. I think people will look at my, at the look at the middle age and go I don't like that kind of cartooning, or I only like the style of anime or manga where they that that there's this kind of immediate uh, check mark that work has to that visual work has to tick off uh, to be allowed into the person's uh space whether well, i don't like that i will i want to keep that at arm's length that's not my cup of tea or that looks childlike and i'm not a child it's gonna it, these things which I, I think that art style can confront the person's identity their mm -hmm. self-identity a little bit like i'm too old for that stuff uh or that stuff i don't know it's it's weird that i i feel like i'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how from hell is perfect because it's eddie campbell and oh, uh, and Watchmen is perfect because it's Dave Gibbons. And if you swap those artists, both works would be interesting, but I don't know if they would be what they are. Well, you, you uh, know, that's so well said. I mean, when I think and particularly, you know, I think you're right. You know, um, there is that quality. And I, and I one of the things you notice if you, you know, you go through Instagram or you go through, you know, you're watching, you know, the feeds of anybody who's putting stuff out there. And, um, I, I think one of the things you're, you're right about, or, or if you go to webtoons, you go to any place where there's a lot of cartooning around. One of the things I noticed, say going through previews 
uh, catalog blog every now and again is that like there is a particular kind of illustrative look that is ubiquitous in a way it's everywhere and 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 you can't like you know uh say it's i mean it comes from i guess the original or originator in comics you know it's probably somebody like it's alex raymond and, and hal foster but it looks nothing like that anymore it 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 doesn't look anything like neil adams anymore it's probably got more roots in something like jim lee or something like that um but there there is this look to a lot of stuff and it's highly sophisticated it's it's you know i mean the 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 guys and the folks doing this stuff are really accomplished illustrators but they work within a mode visually that is kind of circumscribed by a set of criteria and you get to know what that language is as a reader as a viewer and you know whether you're going to like that as you're saying like that comic or not like that comic or you want to get into that world because visually the all of the cues are being hit for you um you know the the sound of the guitars in country music or whatever all of those or in metal you know you know what you're getting into by the way those chords are played through the amplifier well it's the same thing visually and it's the same thing then there's a whole section of comics that are you know manga and the manga look is a very highly stylized particular kind of look there's a whole you know um generation of of comics readers who are that's my thing and and that's what they look to and if you look at webtoons you know 97 percent of the stuff there that's particularly popular is of that kind of look you know and that's because the audience as you're saying is is cued into that they've grown up with that and they've learned to love that and if it doesn't fit within that well then it's dis- it's something they can dismiss because it's not something they're they're really into the same goes through kind of there's a there's a lot of people out there who work in this um style that's very akin to disney you know of the 1990s early 2000s it's got that that look you know the girls are drawn uh, all looking like disney women you know or the heroes have a certain look to them that's coming right out of disney and that's a very popular look among illustrators too and there are many accomplished artists working well within that and then there's bruce tim you know and bruce tim is a template and there's a zillion people working off of that template you know uh and again people who are interested in that template they go for that kind of stuff it's really it's really interesting i'm glad you i'm glad you were i i find people are often dismissive of the talents of of artwork that they don't like i'm glad you appreciate the the the, when you look through previews, even if it's you look at something and go, "Oh, that's not for me," or "It's not my cup of tea," you can you can you you see what's going on and you see the work oh. involved. Because I feel like a lot of too many of our colleagues will sometimes dismiss something. Like I, I look at Rob Liefeld's work and I go, "Yeah, anatomically that's not right," but I I feel like a lot of our colleagues don't appreciate the impact that it has. Like oh my someone, God. Same someone, with Kirby, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Someone looks at it and goes, "Wow," and that was it. You, if you go past the wow or if someone, you know, because it seems like a lot of the arguments against those kind of choices are based on realism. Like, well, that's not what a body looks like. I'm like, well, it's this a is book comics. Of, yeah. <laughs> guy's got wings. What are you talking about? Realism. Realism. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very shaky foundation onto which to build an argument. And, and um, Alex Raymond, by the way, who, you know, maybe is the guy who started all of this, is drawing highly idealized types of people. 
right? They're types. They're not real people. They're types of people. They're idealized forms of people, right? And yet somehow this has become the template for, um, you know, quote unquote, realism in in uh, illustration, comics illustration. And I love Alex Raymond. But I'm well and 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 I'm in awe of his capabilities and his skills. You know, I mean, particularly when you get to Rip Kirby, it's just like mind blowing how beautiful. Yeah. It's. Holy shit, you know. <laughs> but it's not realism. You know, it's it's pen and ink work of highly, very beautiful, highly idealized people. And this is true of a lot of comics illustration. You know, when we look at at those forms. They're not Batman by Jim Lee is not a real person. It's incredibly well drawn, you know, of a in a particular style and idiom. And he's a master of it, you know, brilliant. But or Frank Cho, you know, brilliant at what he does. But we're not talking realism. We're talking, you know, uh, we're talking idealized forms that are exaggerated to fit a particular genre or storytelling mode. And yet at the same time, you've got to be cognizant of how how well done this stuff is within its idiom. You know, these are masters at what they're doing. And I appreciate it for that, even though like, you know, it's, it's not my cup of tea or may not be what I like get excited about doing. Um, it's, I'm more excited by, you know, UPA cartoons from the 1950s and, (laughs) and, and, you know, Bob Cannon and, and John Hubley and stuff like that, uh, or whatever, you know, um, I get into Harry Lucy and, and Archie comics, you know, and Dan DiCarlo and stuff, but okay. I can also, you know, I think you have to, you have to be able to look and say, Jesus, you know, this is just incredibly well done stuff. And I, and that's the one thing we have to say about common, uh, uh, contemporary comics production. You know, there are so many people who are working at a, a level that used to be reserved for highly proficient, you know, very successful illustrators in the magazine market in the 20, in, you know, middle, early 20th century. Now these people are working in comics and they are really, really in command of their skills, you know, and, uh, I'm in awe of like what they do. I mean, I, I'm, I muddle through, you know, with what I do, but these, these people are really just you know, just amazing. And, and, uh, and it goes from that level, you know, working within that realm, you know, to, I was talking to Jay Stevens a couple of weeks ago to what he's doing, you know, with the language of Harvey comics and Richie rich and stuff like that. Or, you know, on, on another hand, you can go look at, at, um, you know, people who are working in a minimalist style and, and doing alternative comics, you know, um, you know, King cat, you know, John Porcelino or somebody. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are working in different visual styles. And I think you are absolutely right. If it's appropriate to the story that's being told, that's when it, that's when it clicks. Boy, I just, I'm sorry to take up so much airspace. No, no, that's great. That is great. I, I, Two two guys sitting around agreeing with each other vehemently. Uh, right, I know. How interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I, and it, it really is that you know you look at Raina Telgemeier's work and you can't imagine more appropriate art for those stories. How perfect they are together. And oh, Linda the Barrett. real the real successes in comics, I think, are when the art style meets the material perfectly, and that kind of. Uh, alchemy that happens when it's really perfect for each other. Rick Veach on Brat Pack, mm-hmm. uh, Jeff Smith on Bone. Yes. Like, there's just no better combination of those things. And when it comes together that way, 
uh, it, I don't know. That's kind of what I, where Will Eisner on the spirit, where take it, you know, so much further, where even the lettering feels like it's, you know, part of the universe. Yeah. That's kind of the ideal for me, where if I can, if I can ever f- figure myself out enough to make it so that my work can be that integrated, uh, then. Well, I think yeah. the Middle Age is done now, Steve. You know, well, I'm gonna tell you. It's I mean, a, a work in progress. Well, okay, it will always be a work in progress. And it would be dangerous, I suppose, for you to think, okay, this is the thing that's, you know, maybe so. But I I have to tell you, when I, everything, right down to the packaging of the material, you know, like I've got the the two books in front of me right now, and I've got little, the little water bottom, uh, you know, (laughs) and, and all of these things. And I think this is one of the things I tell I tell my students that that are interested in cartooning, you know, study graphic design, which I never did, and and obviously, you know, I think that's obvious in everything I do. Um, but when you look at what you've done in terms of packaging, the packaging, as well as the logo, as well as you know, the the character the the character design, down to the the coloring and the way that you've built this visual world and the lettering. All of these things are considered and they're considered as they relate to one another, not one thing standing out from another. They're all part of this world you've built, this this integrated, you know, world you've built, um, this organic life form you've you've given birth to here. Uh, You know, the Middle Age, it really functions in the way that you're talking about. you know, is this the great a great meaning of the cartoonist and a subject and a medium, uh, you know, that works just so 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 well, and uh, which is why I think it's got so many, you know, so many readers and it's been acknowledged by so many people. You know, it's it's altogether terrific stuff. You've okay that well, everything you just said there will be in the next back check blur <laughs> my book. My next book, it's just going to be a wall of text where you saying nice things about the, the book. I think it, it, if I, I think if I can stick the landing with book three and wrap up this first arc in a way that I hope will be what I, well, it will be what I hope. Let me rewrite that sentence. Uh, I think I will be, I'll be content if this is the only thing I've done. Um, you feel like you've got, you've got this is if this is the thing that people remember you for. If I'm remembered at all for anything, I will be thrilled if it's this. If I if I stick the landing, if I fumble it, uh, please consider supporting the astounding space thrills because <laughs> apparently, apparently it's I, I peaked 23 years ago and the collection's available now. <laughs> That's far from the truth, but nevertheless, <laughs> uh, you you know it it will be good to see these all three volumes together in the complete story arc. I think that is something to be. You know, um, it's also the kind of thing that I think, I hope, you know, will will proliferate. Like, well, one of the things that strikes me, and it came up in a conversation uh, I think we had a while ago, um, you, you had said, you know, publishers weren't interested in this, that you took it around. Now, what, what I would hope is that they would see what you've done now, and a big publisher would say to you, Steve, we want to take, all, you know, all three books, put them together. Make one, and we want to mass market this to Barnes and Noble. We want to get it out to school libraries. 
which I think would be great for. It's, it's one of the things that I, you know, the hallmark of success, I think, in some ways is having the book show up in school libraries so that kids get to see it or, or you know, public libraries, you know, if not school libraries. And, and it's just, you know, something that would enable that kind of mass production to happen to it. Um, but as you said earlier, I think, you know, and I suppose maybe this is the kind of thing that can be inspiration to other folks out there, but you, you shopped this around a little bit and, and it didn't find any takers. No. And, and, um, and, and some, I'm still shopping it around. I, I, I still would like to see, because I, I, and why would I do that if I've got successful Kickstarters and, you know, a Patreon support and all that, why also try to find a publisher and why would I want to lose the, those rights? Why would I want all that stuff? Well, a publisher would do something like represented in Hollywood for being turned into something else. Mm -hmm. Not that that's the end goal, but that's would be a lovely revenue stream mm -hmm. uh, uh, and get the word out. Even if it's a terrible thing, even even if what they turn it into is awful, it would still be it would still at least function as an ad for all my books um, and my Patreon. Well, you know, look what happened to Jeff Smith and Bone, right? Through Scholastic. Oh yeah, that would be that would be amazing. I just don't. I I just for some reason have not yet pictured the middle age going to schools. I mean, there's a guy running around with a sword. There's lots of blood. Yeah, that's true. There's a bit of double entendre about a middle aged guy who's got sword problems. Uh, it, it's <laughs> it's there's a lot of stuff in there that is really. I mean, I know people who read it to their kids, and it's supposed to work like it's supposed to work on both levels. It's supposed yeah. to work for like Bugs Bunny did, where there's stuff for the the, the grown-ups who are in the theater and also for the kids who were right next to them yeah um, yeah yeah you know uh, but, uh, but with everyone being so sensitive i can totally imagine there's tons of stuff in there where people would have issues but i still want to get it in the comic book stores because i think that's a a, a market full of people who like spending money on content well they do and and i think they you know there is a big, big enough audience for this and, uh, and for, you know, I mean, it's just so beautiful that you can't imagine anybody, but not wanting it. But then again, you can think of, you know, comic shops, which are struggling to begin with, I guess, uh, at this point. Um, but you know, finding shelf space for an oddly, oddly formatted book, according to comics, uh, you know, formats which are, are fairly rigid but nevertheless um yeah it would be great to see it there or in any bookstore and i think you know i, I tend to think of it yes as as i guess i kind of think of it as all ages material in the same way but you know in the same way that you know bullwinkle and rocky or as you said bugs bunny or or uh, um there's so many other things that work both for adults and for kids because you know the language or whatever is used or the the topics that are referred to maybe well beyond you know the purview of children but adults certainly get them that's what makes bullwinkle still so relevant and worth watching is that the humor is really you know um more appropriate for adults rather than than kids but you know kids are watching all kinds of things right you know south park and and uh and they're watching you know the simpsons for 30 years and you know i mean so what's appropriate any longer i, I you know it's kind of funny to think about uh what what would be appropriate in a school library or not because there are so many different i don't know levels uh and and so much more out there that that kids are being exposed to for better or for worse but i don't really you know when it comes to certain cartoons and whatnot i mean what are you going to do you know it's the south park is out there and 
and it's funny as all get out, you know? So, and I think for me, it's it's not so much that I wouldn't want it to be in schools. I just don't want it being in a school library to enter into my thinking process about oh, whether yeah, I yeah. could use a joke or not. Right. And that comes down to it, where it's like, uh, you know, I'll have a, a thing where I'll think it would be ridiculous if he's hit with 50 arrows and there's just blood everywhere. Uh, and I could see someone having an issue with that as mm-hmm. or, or um, uh, and there's just there's just some jokes that I've made where I where I think I'm. Uh, at some point, it was I was using a number of references to painting a word picture, and mm-hmm. someone was not, and the, the sword was saying that's not painting a word picture, and it made one joke after another, like choking the word chicken, and mm-hmm. I don't, and to me that is incredibly, that's possibly extremely inappropriate. It's also so absurd yeah. that it it to me it pushes past any possible profanity mm-hmm. into such absurdity mm-hmm. that it makes me laugh it's it's also the cadence of the words mm-hmm. and so much of what i've tried to write is when it when i do when it does click and if it is on that line or pass over the line um if it makes me laugh i don't care about the line mm-hmm. and if, if i mean if a t- if i got a ton of if, if i lost 10 patreon supporters because my joke was too blue uh, again, I don't. I never try to make a blue joke. I never try to do anything that's overtly uh, offensive. Just that's just because it's my character. It's not because it's not. It's, right. it's because of who I am, not because of the story I'm telling. I don't want to. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Or, you know, my job as a communicator is to make them laugh. Right. And you and, do that. Well, and that that's the hope is that as long as it's funny, and I think maybe even empirically funny. Not that that I that I'm like that that I if I if I had to get in front of the the court of public opinion and make the case that choking the word chicken is funny, I think I I I'd be very comfortable. I'd be I'd be comfortable losing that case if they said that's not funny. Then I'm okay with that too. Well, you know, you you know, you point. I mean, this opens up a, a topic that I'm sure there are other folks more well suited to dealing with but you know the idea i don't want to say it's a is it a freedom of speech issue it's not really because you can choose to say what you want to say and how you want to say it but um in your own book but as a writer being cognizant of this that and the other possible offense and circumscribing what your characters say with a nod to that idea can make for some very sterile writing. And, you know, I think that's, that's, uh, that's a dangerous territory. I mean, you know, I mean, some of the stuff that I just love now, listen, you know, I'm a, I'm an old guy. I'm a dinosaur. I come from a different generation, but I'm very progressive in my politics. People know that about me, but, um, but you know, when it comes to Monty Python, I don't want anybody going through the Holy grail and starting to cut out jokes because this person or that person finds it, you know, troubling. Well, you know, I mean, what, what do you do? You know, I mean, a lot of what George Carlin said was troubling, you know, um, could be offensive. And I think at some point or another, as an artist, as a writer, you've got to risk offending people, you know, for the sake of what it is that you're doing. And Hey, if the culture, you know, moves in a way that decides that, well, you know, uh, there's no room for this kind of stuff in the world. There's always going to be somebody who's, you know, finds value in Monty Python, 
right? But if the culture moves away from that, well, so be it. It's in some ways, it's kind of the culture's loss, you know, uh, as it were. But there's always going to be somebody who finds it, but who who gets into it and understands the absurdity for what it is, you know? I mean, a knight standing out in the middle of the woods and getting his arms and legs cut off is not funny on the face of it, you know? But in the context of the film, the absurdity of it is just hilarious, you know? Uh, so what are you going to do about that? Somebody's going to be upset about it, you know, somewhere and not want to watch the film, but yeah, I, I get that. I, I think the, the, the advent of disclaimers, uh, contextualizing mm. the time period in which something was created. I think that's a good solution. Mm. Um, I think, uh, I, I, I don't have a problem. I mean, there's a, there's a backlash right now against quote unquote woke culture and yeah. I don't have a problem with, any of that policing of speech and all that stuff by people, not the government, but by people. I have no problem with someone saying, Steve, you crossed the line if, if, I, if I cross that line. Because I feel as a communicator, first and foremost, as a communicator, who's someone try, trying to tell a story, mm-hmm. that if I'm not staying aware mm-hmm. of what words mean, then that's on me. Mm-hmm. And it would pain me to hurt a reader sure so or or worse not get my idea across you know so uh you know hey folks it's time to take a break stretch your legs go for a walk get yourself something to drink a little nosh if you will come back for the second hour when you're ready in the meantime here's some information about my latest project what if movies weren't just flickers of light on a screen but windows into real worlds in alternate dimensions. What if one day you found yourself transported to the land of Oz and the Wicked Witch of the West was chasing after you? In green screen, a Hollywood sex symbol wakes up one morning to find she's in an alternate reality called the Cineverse, where she's no longer a movie star, and every movie ever made is a real world. She travels from one world to another, wrestling with movie monsters and evil empires, struggling to find her way back to a world where movies were just movies, and a green screen only a blank surface. Green Screen is a sci-fi fantasy comedy comic book, 32 pages in full color. You can buy the print edition at Etsy, at Jeff Grogan Art, or subscribe on Webtoons Canvas. Be sure to follow at Green Screen Comic on Instagram. It's because, and that, and that's when it gets into sloppiness. Where, for the, because so, sometimes people are covering up bad jokes by saying you don't like it because, you know, you're PC oh, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Sure, and, sure. Or they're covering up. Some some jokes are are funny because they're taboo, right? Like you're getting people to do a nervous giggle and a lot of stuff of that sort. Uh, the Andrew Dice Clays of the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They are, uh, th- th- that stuff ages so poorly. Oh, yeah. And, and I feel like it's okay. It's okay for us to go, ooh, dude, or let's not, let's not have any more of that. And it's up to the creator at that point to learn or not learn. I, I, maybe I'm going to be opening myself up to criticism from people who think that, you know, I do think the joke is of paramount importance, but I think communicating the joke properly is of paramount importance. And if you're going to get caught into if because you add a bit of flourish to it that suddenly makes it problematic, then I think you're doing it wrong. 
And I, I don't think you can make your I don't think you can bulletproof yourself against criticism. Right. But I think you owe it to yourself to avoid obvious fire. Uh, well, you know, I think I think there are issues where perhaps um you know, obviously clearly you don't want to you don't want to as a writer, you don't and you're making a joke, you don't want to denigrate people and you don't want to um, you don't want to say things that are demeaning about people, you know, or individuals or, you know, the kind of, of awful humor that kids get engaged in, you know, children can get engaged in making, you know, jokes about one another based on their behaviors or, or something like that. Or, you know, one kid likes this bike and another kid likes that bike. And, you know, for some reason or another, you know, it's something to humiliate somebody about. I think all that stuff is, you know, stuff you've got to be cognizant of that. But I also think at the same time, when you're telling a story about characters who are perhaps unsavory uh, characters, then, you know, I, I, I think there has to be a certain kind of nuance in understanding what fiction is and understanding how fiction operates. And when you're speaking at, like as an artist from your point of view as an artist or where you're when you're speaking as a character in character, you know, absolutely, and, absolutely. You know, so there, there are distinctions that I think that have to be made. And I think one of the things that gets lost in uh, the, you know, the Twitterverse or wherever you see these kinds of things happening, one of the things that gets lost, I think, sometimes is nuance, you know, and um, some things are taken out of context or, or whatnot or, or, or other that can be very problematic, you know, and I think in the rush to judgment, we often overlook nuance and that's not to say certain things shouldn't be condemned, obviously, you know, I mean, sometimes it's absolutely right to jump, you know, on, on the head of Tucker Carlson and, and, you know, everything that he comes out of his mouth or, you know, something like that. Um, but I think also there are other times when a writer is writing and, and something comes out that is, you know, of a particular, uh, from a character that is reflective of that character's disposition, you know, or something like that, if you know what I mean. I, th yeah. I think it's easy to lose the nuance. Um, yeah, I, I think the main problem is that the reason why people are policing jokes is that people have used the word, used the phrase, it was a joke as a defense so yeah. often for bad thought or not. Oh, absolutely. I say, when I say a bad thought, I don't mean you, I don't mean you know, some sort of bad, like you shouldn't have the thought. I mean, badly formed thought or mm -hmm. incorrectly bad, bad is the, uh, not a moral judgment, just the opposite of well-constructed. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's so many poor arguments and poor jokes and easy jokes and sloppy communication. And they'll just go, it was a joke. And I'm like, that's not a defense for being a jerk. Yeah, and so yeah. much of this is just being an antisocial jerk yeah. that, yeah, you were joking while you were being an antisocial jerk, but <laughs> you might as well say I was dancing while I was being an antisocial. It's irrelevant. The, yeah. What you thought you were doing at the time you were being an antisocial jerk has nothing to do with what we're complaining about. And so much of the stuff is uh, fixed by just leaving Twitter. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's both. It's it's the Simpsons. It's the Simpsons joke about alcohol. It is the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Is uh, oh, yeah, yeah. just leave Twitter. Leave Twitter, and you're no longer canceled. You've pre-canceled yourself. Right, right. You know, I uh, it's um, 
I think that there is, uh, you know, I think I saw in the, in just a brief message in the, or was it a brief line in an article in the times that, that I did not get into reading this morning. And it had something to do with, you know, okay, we're living in a moment This is particularly, maybe it was in an article written by Heather Cox Richardson. I'm not sure. We're in a moment where, you know, on the one hand, we have one party that is, is coalescing around something called the big lie. You know, the idea that the, the election was fraudulent and we have a whole slew, a whole slew of the population that buys in, that's buying into that lie and a whole assortment of other lies associated with it. Um, like for example, you know, Biden is going to outlaw meat, you know, which is something that was popular on the internet the other day. People don't realize, people don't realize he's made of meat. Yeah. (laughs) There's a joke. (laughs) There's a joke for you. Oh God! <laughs> what Some of his of... best friends are me. Yeah, right. Uh, but you know, so there, there was this idea uh, in, that was attendant with that was that how, how can we, when we have these two divergent, you know, sets of facts that are pro- that are promoted, you know, endlessly on social media, right? Um, how do we? how do we ever come together to do anything constructive when one side lives in one reality, admittedly, you know, constructed out of whole cloth and another lives in another reality. Right. And, and neither the twain shall meet, you know, and, and as long as there's this proliferation of material that, that is, you know, uh, fictional or fraudulent, on the one hand, and yet it proliferates through social media endlessly. How, how do you ever get a handle on that so that you can say, look, you know, we're n- the, Biden is not outlawing meat, you know, or, or, you know, they're not eliminating math from schools, which is something I heard somebody say the other day, you know, uh, I mean, all kinds of fear mongering, right. That is, it blown out of proportion because of this environment. And I guess the same goes through, it relates back to what we're talking about, you know, that, yeah, you can leave Twitter. It's not going to stop Twitter from functioning, but you can leave it if you're, you know, if you don't want to deal with that stuff. But, but the larger issue is, is the, um, that some, in some ways we have more communication available to us than ever before. But at the same time, it also seems to separate us in in ways that have never really happened on the scale before i find as as a little blue dot in a very in a sea of red i mean i'm in florida and a lot of my not all but a lot of the people around here are very republican like in mm-hmm. the last election every name with an r next to it won yeah and every democratic ballot initiative also won oh wow because it didn't have an r next to it there's a lot of team loyalty and a lot of money to be made from angering people. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And because that is a financial incentive to keep people outraged and all that stuff, I find that there's a lot of common ground. Like if you are if you stand on the street, not in the street, but on the street next to a person of opposite political persuasion. And the question is, how do we fix this crack in the road? You'll come up with a solution pretty quickly and there's no problem. It's mm-hmm. these bigger things about Biden wants to do this, this armchair quarterbacking of people mm-hmm. and fear mongering and taking things out of context willfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then and then 
but not to get into politics and all that stuff, but as a cartoonist, my thing is that I think that because we can agree on specific tiny things, that's how we can take little steps. And my comic is hopefully hmm. like that in a way. It's not political. Everything's political, but it's yeah. not overtly propagandistic. No, I think that if I have things, if I have themes in there of not punching down, of uh, self-determination and self-identification and actualizing your identity in a way, if those things, the things that I believe, and as long as I'm doing something, as long as I do my best to be a good person and project something earnestly, then I think that comes through in a way that I hope would be positive enough that and so far I haven't had to deal with. I, I, I have I have supporters of every political persuasion, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I and and I don't think I can change, nor should I want to muck around with anybody's brain. In terms, well, in ter- like, people want to change somebody's mind. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're not a propaganda person you know what a propagandaist is that what it is uh, or yeah i think so or propagandist and I, I think that they but i think people are often of these political persuasions as as sort of tribal like their community is like that and in order to fit into their community they adopt ideas and they're not necessarily coming from foundational principles they're more like absorbed from the outside it fits it helps them get through the day and they just kind of and if that means being a jerk or being you know uh a bigot then that's why they're that's why they're doing this thing. They're told this thing is right and to fit in their community and not be uh, you know uh, ostracized within their community. But mm-hmm. I do think if they had better foundational beliefs, not mm-hmm. better, more solid. How about that? Or more integrated, mm-hmm. more uh, realistic. I don't know. I'm going to start sounding like a, I'm going to start politicizing or uh, <laughs> uh, soapboxing. But I, I just think with a little bit of comic strip. As long as I'm doing something honest and truthful and earnest that, you know, I'm not trying to nudge anybody, but I do think that they there is a price of admission for entering my brain mm-hmm. and they have to pay it because the stories that's where the story lives. And it's um, and if they become a little more sensitive to the needs of. Uh, and, and the fa- fairness that the world needs, mm-hmm. then. I don't know. I, I think we we all do our little part by doing something that is hopeful and positive and bright. Well, we we hope so. I mean, I know some people are. Well, you know, I think we all come at it from a different different point of view. You know, um, I think a lot of us want to just entertain people. You know, um, do something entertaining that's engaging and exciting and 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 fun. Um, whether it's you know uh, Peter Bag and hate, or it's it's Steve Conley in the middle age, you know, or me and green screen or whatever, we're all finding our vehicle, you know, towards expressing something that we hope engages an audience on some level. I know in your case and in my case, we're both hoping that people are entertained and um, and find humor in what we're doing. You know, they laugh along the way and that they care about the characters over a period of time and things of, of that nature. Um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, but on the other hand, there are a lot of, you know, cartoonists who, who do come at it from one point perspective or another perspective and, and work politically, you know, um, with an ideology in mind. And, um, that's not something, you know, that at the moment anyway, that I'm, 
trying to do. Um, and, and, you know, as you're saying, you know, it's coming from a different place, you know, a different, a different place, something, something that, that, let's, you know, I don't want to say issues politics, but, you know, contemporary politics or, or the simplifications of contemporary politics. Um, you know, that's, that's not what we're engaged in at, the moment and as you said you're exploring ideas in in your work about you know self-actualization about but also through the lens of humor you know which i think is really important i mean sometimes genre can really play a very important plays a, an important role you know in taking people out of maybe the the you know maybe the petty squabbles of everyday life and into another environment and in that different environment you can see things differently because you're no longer you know, trapped by the, um, by the, the, or the, the, the fence that surrounds you, you know, the goalposts that surround you in, in your everyday life. And so I think genre can play, you know, a very viable role in, in opening up an audience or a reader, you know, to, to different perspectives, perhaps, you know, absolutely. And, 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 it, and, and philosophy is embedded in everything we do. And like, it doesn't have to be overt, like with great power comes great responsibility. Nobody was reading Spider-Man for a philosophy lesson. No. <laughs> we, we wanted to see him punch Doc Ock or, you know, figure out how he's going to make his rent next month. You know, it was, and and I feel like uh, that stuff will come through. And it, it's a shame to see some, some things like Captain America uh, misunderstood so powerfully. Mm. Um, or to misunderstand the concept like a villain like the Punisher and how that how that can go off the rails. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea that philosophy is divorced from everything we do is kind of a, is, is is a mistake. Every time you sit down to put a to draw one more thing, you're 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 taking a stand. Oh well, yeah, you are, and 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 it doesn't have to be overtly like as we're saying steeped in the contemporary politics of the day it can be steeped it, it can be it's invested in something else you know it's invested in in a in a in a worldview that's broader than just the the, the arguments of of our time you know the, think, of, the, think of every lesson from like little house on the prairie or mash or flash gordon or superman i mean every and it doesn't have to be a heroic story it could be a mystery whatever it is there's all these I don't know. There's a, there's a, 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 I feel like, I feel like we can, we can do good work even if it doesn't look, if it, it doesn't look like a yard sign. Yeah. Yeah. Or absolutely. Or a bumper sticker. Yeah. No, I, I agree. You know, there's, there's this idea of, of telling a story for its own sake and letting yourself be revealed through the story is about, is, is a big part of, finding your voice, you know, as an artist and, and each voice is important, you know, and distinct. And this is what, you know, I mean, okay, you know, it sounds sappy to say, but this is like what the miracle of life is about, you know, as a, as a conscious being, you know, is the ability, is the idea that your perspective is distinct from anybody else's perspective. And, and so that perspective, and I think one of the things that's, that, yeah, we all want to be tribal in some sense, and we all want to find our tribe, right? And, and people funnel left or right, or they funnel 
this way or that way, you know, uh, find their religious affiliation or whatever, you know, um, that for, for your tribe, or you know, you fall into the alternative comics camp and dismiss everything that is superheroes or, you know what I mean? It's like, we want to be part of a tribe. That's part of it. But, you know, larger than that is, is the experience of the individual. If the individual finds a way to step outside of the, the, you know, the fence posts that we, we build around tribes into just an idea of, of what it means to be a human being alive within, you know, this time which we live in and the experience of life and finds a way to channel that into their work in an honest way. You know, that's when it, whether it's just lighthearted entertainment, you know, or, or even, you know, genre work like you know simply i'm not talking about like i was just thinking about some of those comic strips from the 50s or 60s you know some people spent their lives working on you know some comic strips soap opera comic strips for example you know that might have been their life's work but if it's approached you know with with enthusiasm and honesty and and that connection you know it can transcend those boundaries you know by by um through the sheer, I don't know, openness of the artist to their own experience. Does that make sense? Or does it sound ridiculous? No, no. I yeah, you're describing peanuts to me. <laughs> well, that's what happened, right? I mean, peanuts could have been just like any other kid strip, um, in the in that period of time, right, in the fifties and sixties. And instead, Schultz just opened the door to who he was as a person, warts and all. And I think this is one of the things that's true about, like, say, Robert Crumb, you know, is that in a a much different way than Schultz, but this is what they have in common, in a sense, is this ability to open the door to who they are as a person and warts and all and let it hang out there. And Crumb did a lot of things that, you know, I, I may shudder at or find objectionable or even, but in the, in the scope of his entire body of work, you go, whoa, man, this is a really brave artist, you know, um, somebody who's willing to show themselves to the world in in such a way, in an unflattering light as well. I don't know if Crumb ever showed himself in a flattering light, um, you know, or Schultz at the same way as uh, coded as it is in the world of the daily comic strip. They both open the door to this vision of themselves that is honest, unsparingly honest. And, um, and I, I think, I guess this is what I was kind of getting at to getting at in the, in the accepting a, a body of work by an artist or, or dealing with it outside of the realm of social media and whatnot. When we start to get, examine the work of an artist or engage with the work of an artist in a serious way, if the artist is a really honest artist, a, a great artist they, that's open and sharing with us in an honest way, we are going to encounter the warts in that person. We are going to encounter some attitudes or states of mind that are not um, pleasing. We are going to encounter states of mind that are not that are sometimes objectionable to our own points of view and our own experience. Right. Um, And I'm not talking about people who are blatantly, you know, I mean, well, you understand what I'm talking about. And and so, you know, when we are engaging with them deeply in an honest way, um, I think we understand that the warts of this person are just the warts of one person, you know, um, not necessarily the, uh, 
a political sword being used one way or another, you know, um, you know, I, I find a lot of what crumb does, um, you know, sometimes objectionable in this way or that way, but it doesn't mean at the same time that I, I can't read it and understand where he's coming from as an artist, that he's showing me something about himself that I may not, that I find objectionable or problematic. He probably finds it problematic too. You know, but this is who he is. His psyche is warped or whatever, you know, um, the same thing is true in Schultz's work. Uh, there's there's an ugly side, a, a kind of um, almost a, a, a vindictive or a, uh, what's the word uh, for Lucy, you know, in, in Charlie Brown and in Peanuts, um, an aggressive side, you know, to Schultz. That's not always pleasant. Yeah, I think that when. I think creating an antagonist, you have to philosophically come up with a reason why they're antagonistic. You have to build their backstory and what mm -hmm. makes them bad, what, what, what makes them the bad person in the story. Mm -hmm. And to even say bad person, you have to define what bad is. Mm -hmm. For yourself, you have to say, what's bad? Well, lying to somebody and deceiving them and breaking their heart again and again and again is bad. Mm -hmm. and, um, I mean, I think if enough people had learned that lying was bad, you know, I, I, I know I know that's probably a hot take nowadays that lying is bad. <laughs> but that's I mean, how much could be learned by but so that's what that's all I mean is that it could be so something as simple as that. Yeah. As being uh that, that just it's imbued with philosophy and um I, I and also like you you were saying, ascribe not ascribing to a character not ascribing to the author what a character does. Mm -hmm. Charles Schultz wasn't advocating, you know no Tricking children <laughs> right or stomping on their sandcastle you know? yeah yeah right i mean he found that funny it's not really funny in the real world when a, one kid bullies another kid you know bullying is not a funny thing right and and we're all you know the con the the consequences of bullying i think those of us who you know found ourselves in situations intimidated by their kids at one point in our lives you know we know that's not funny Right. And, but when you read it in Peanuts, it's funny. And there's a distinction between the world of Peanuts because he's established a world that's that's distinct. Right. And a character that's distinct. You know, it's it's funny within that context, which is a context that's separate from the world that children really inhabit. And in yeah. fact, he's expressing something of you know, the aggressive side of, of a human being that transcends children and the, the circumstance of children. It's about, you know, humanity in general. I mean, Lucy is humanity in some ways, you know, and, and life and, and, and the idea that, you know, she's not the protagonist, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's Charlie Brown's not the one knocking over sandcastles. He's not the one sitting on the street corner saying, Oh, how I hate him. Yeah. You know, he's the one who's just, he's us. Well, he is. And one of the things that comes to my mind, though, is that Peanuts didn't coalesce until Lucy started antagon antagonizing Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown really didn't become Charlie Brown until Lucy came along. And it's kind of interesting how they depend upon one another. And um, for, for the developing self, you know, which is, it, it, well, that's an, a lesson in and of itself, I guess. You know, uh, I mean... It's not, yeah, Charlie Brown's the protagonist and the hero of the comic strip. And you're right. Lucy is, it plays a different role. But Charlie Brown's not Charlie Brown without Lucy. And 
that's kind of like, well, you know, Spider-Man's not Spider-Man without the Green Goblin or J. Jonah Jameson. Right. You know, uh, but anyway, this is like pontificating is like, where the hell did this come from? <laughs> you, you probably have like a good 13 minutes of quality content in this that we could, you can use. Just cut me out of it entirely. And I think oh, you've, got a good, you've got a good show. Man, I, I don't know why I'm going off like this. I don't know. What, <laughs> I really don't know what 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 the heck inspired this. But, uh, you know, anyway, I've been yapping way too much. Um, we're supposed to be talking about the astounding space thrills, man. And and uh, somehow or another, it, the idea of genre sort of exploded out into all these different directions, you know. Um, but Steve, Steve, <laughs> tell me, let's talk comics, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, let's talk, let's talk about astounding space thrills some more. Right. Um, so, so what does the Kickstarter, the, the, the first, you know, volume in the Kickstarter, what is that, what is in entailed within it? What is it, it, uh, contain? So astounding space thrills was the first web comic I did back in 1998, it ran for about 500 episodes. And the very first story I did ran about ran 101 episodes. And the story was called undersea menace from the year 3200. And it was anyone who's seen the astounding space thrills comics that I self published or that image published or the collection that IDW had put together. Um, the, this is not that story. The, the web comic stories were self-contained. Uh, mm-hmm. From the beginning, I treated the comic book as one thing, and the com and the, and the web comic as sort of standalone storylines. Like the comic book was movies, and these were TV shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're not they're, they're, if they, there is a continuity to the universe, but it's not like you have to read any of these stories in order. The web comics were meant to be read in any order, which is why I'm collecting them individually, sort of like European albums, like Tintin or a Karl Barks story from the from the from Uncle Scrooge. Mm-hmm. And that analogy. Yeah. And so so this first one is Undersea Menace from the year 3200. We're probably going to hit the next stretch goal. Fingers crossed. uh, Not the next one. The one after like 1200 or so. or So 12,000, which will mean there will be additional pages in it. So it'll be that first story plus some bonus stuff as well. I'm really excited about that. And each one of these books, there'll be three books at least that will each one will contain a story from the original webcomic. There's. The next one will be Space Quakes, and the one after that is the Fabergé Omelette. And there will be additional background material in the in the back of each book. I, maybe some sketches from the time that I was able to save, maybe some sneak peeks and work in progress, but also some extra comics that were created in between those longer stories. Like once one big story wrapped up on the webcomic, I would... I had colorized some print comics and adapted them for the web. And I still have some of those and I might include those as backup features, but hopefully by the time the third book comes out, every one of the web comics will be in print. Finally, man, that's pretty cool. That, that's going to be great. A great little, you except, know, compendium. except for the last story, which I never finished, which was who stole professor Vavracek's brain. And that uh-huh. story, I think I got about 60 or 70 episodes into when uh the dot-com bubble burst and yeah. things went sideways and uh i was rereading that story again recently and i have no idea how it ends uh, I, I so to, are you gonna you're gonna go back into it you think sometime or is you just you're just too overwhelmed right now with the middle age and other stuff currently overwhelmed but yeah. uh depending on how the next year or so goes if if patreon support continues to increase and i'm able to work on the middle age full-time i'm mm. still juggling it with freelance design projects 
right. uh, and the occasional other illustration project. But if the more of my time is spent doing cartooning, I could imagine spending a day each week mm -hmm. recreating the or continuing that story and finally finishing it. Because it was very interesting, that style, I, I had changed my style dramatically for that fourth story. Oh, really? And uh, I was using a, I was using the, so so the first three larger stories for the webcomic and all the print comics were drawn with a vector program, like I was saying, with the mouse clicks. Yeah. What I did with the last one was I used the dead line weight of the pen tool so a like let's say a one point line or a half point line oh and i just use that to do the drawing so everything's kind of a contour drawing uh, uh wow. or like early it, dick, middle sorry. period dick tracy <laughs> <laughs> but i and but it was it was i think the color at that point i had started to step up with the color because with the line doing less work the color had to step up mm. and so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if I if I if I can revisit that and how I could possibly match that style again. Or if you'd want to like redraw the whole thing. Oh know? gosh, no no no. I, I that was something I learned from Rick Veach. He said, "Don't ever go back and redraw that stuff. Don't ever do it." It's he he was right because as much as I cringed by looking at it five years after, ten mm -hmm. years after, I was immune. Uh, I built up a tolerance to my old work, and I'm no longer affected by it. Wow, man. I, I so do you. Well, first of all, your stuff is at a, a level, I think, you know, a proficiency even back then that was just, you know, just beautiful. So, I mean, I don't see how you could go back and, you know, feel. Oh, gosh, necks are too long. Heads are the wrong. I mean, there's certain certain cartooning rules, rules, things that I started to do halfway through my career that I learned along the way, partly by doing Astounding Space Throws, like, you know, little things like making sure that like heads are always at an angle, you know. There's uh -huh. a, it's kind of a rigidity of like cartooning heads that run it like that are on the perfect vertical axis. Like oh, no, right, one ever, right. no one ever holds their head perfectly straight unless they're on a firing squad. Right. And uh, so, you know, th th just little things like the life that you put into a character, it's really lacking in some of that early stuff. And I, and I can't just blame the tools. That was that was really a lack of proficiency. I hadn't put my 10,000 hours in yet. Well, you know, it's still going to look great. And, and <laughs> but it really, it, you know, whatever. You know, I think that some of the things that you're noticing, a lot of readers won't notice because I'm, the books are going to be beautiful. And the strip looks beautiful. And, oh, and the I, story holds up. I'm surprised how well it, it holds up. Yeah, that's the thing, you know. It's all of your, you know, your work was there. And um, and everything was operating on a, a really high level right from the start. It was really, and that's why it was one of the most popular you know, web comics of the time of its era, we can say now, you know, it's long enough that we can say of its era. Yeah, I was writing a press release for it and calling it a classic web comic. Classic. <laughs> it felt weird, but classic web true. comic. Yeah, it's true, but that's really weird to think about. Yeah, it's where we're, we're at, right? It's like, I mean, where did those 30 years go? You know, 25 years. It's crazy, you know, to think about. Uh, you know, it's interesting talking to you. I have a whole pile of stuff that I did back in the nineties that is just like, I have a whole pile of penciled pages. Um, I did like three, four published, uh, printed issues of this comic I did called Dr. Speck back in sure. the nineties. And, um, and I, I put it online for a while, but never always half-heartedly. It was always meant to be a print comic. And, um, I was dragging my feet in those days. And well, still am kind of, but anyway, uh, I, I went on to do like 
two more printed issues that were, you know, mini com not mini comics. They were like over comics. They were larger than, you know, whatever size. And, uh, but they were self published, you know, well, everything was self published, but they were done on, they were late done on the old Xerox machine at Staples, you know, uh, a couple of those. And I did a couple of those. So, and then on top of that, I went back somewhere around the year 2000 and I finished the whole Dr. Speck story by drawing about, I don't know, 300 pages of pencil drawings without any text whatsoever. I'd, I'd written a note on notebook pages, what the plot was and what certain things were characters were going to say along the way through like 300 pages. And, and I lost the notes because in those days I didn't keep it on an iPad or anything. I've got the drawings for like all this stuff, but I don't have any of the notes. So I have absolutely no idea what the heck is happening in this story. <laughs> why it's, why it's happening so i look at the pages and I, there's some kind of flow, flow through there there's a continuity the, the character ends up in the stomach of a dragon and i don't know oddly enough actually uh it's a weird dragon too but he ends up in the stomach of this dragon and goes through the whole digestive tract you know and but where it ends up after that is like this weird freaking place and I, I i have no idea what it means so i've got all these pages that i don't think i'll ever do anything with but oh my I gosh! Thought, you, you got to you get and you get to Stanley yourself. You get to you get to you get pages from an artist. You don't know what they were thinking, and you have to write your own. Make script. it up. What yeah. the hell is this? You know? Oh man, there's this one part where the character, like, like in um, I don't know if you've read Dune, but you know, in Children of Dune, I think Leto, uh, son of Paul Muad'Dib, becomes. Uh, a kind of sandworm and um in one aspect of this story my lead character becomes some kind of wormy creature in a garbage can and uh, i don't know how that ended up happening or why <laughs> what does this mean anyway some but it's, it's so much work that i can't you know you go back and you look at it and you go oh my god it's just so much work to go back and redo i don't know i'd really have to be bored <laughs> yeah, a, a, a pandemic helped me yeah. uh, Get, get well, this collection. I also think the quality of the stuff, your stuff was, you know, really finished to a high degree in a, a certain level. And that's very different than having all pencil pages with no text and yeah. it back. That's a lot of work. But, you know, at least your stuff was at a certain level and you had the files. And maybe you had to do some touch up here and there. But at least it, it was, you know, it was there and, and the color is great. And you do so many, did so many wonderful things. And, you know, I remember the strip and. Uh, just being astounded by it. I used to go to it on the, what was it called? The Comic-Con online? Um, sure. Comic-Con.com. Yeah. yeah. Comic-Con.com that Rick Veach did. And um, I used to read it there. And uh, I was just like, oh, my God, look at what this guy is doing. It's incredible. So, you know, aside from all of these super, super, superlatives, um, you know, you've run how many Kickstarters now that are successful? This is my fifth fifth successful kickstarter that's amazing well so far successful every, every one of my backers could back out today i don't, know. <laughs> I don't think so <laughs> but but you're, you're okay you know your pessimism aside <laughs> like hedging your bets um aside from that so you know for okay so for those cartoonists who are listening or wondering how do you put together a successful Kickstarter, what, you know, what are the ground rules? What do you have to do in order to make five successful Kickstarters? I, well, you have to have your audience beforehand. 
you have to you have to build up i would say the number one thing you could have would be a mailing list uh-huh. where you know that there are x number of people who you can email and get excited about your project and if you have if you if you do events in the future have mm-hmm. a sign up sheet so that mm-hmm. people can get on your mailing list and the mailing list is the most important thing you've got um unlike social media which can turn on you uh, not the content, but the the, the not, not the not the not your fellow social media inhabitants, but the the companies can suddenly punish you in algorithms or make it so outbound links are no longer visible, like Facebook and Twitter currently kind of penalize any outbound links. Your your mailing list is something that you keep, and you can reach out to people directly with no interference, virtually no interference, and uh, super valuable to have. So I would have that mailing list. I would figure out your costs ahead of time. I would also it's just a, work out the math, simply saying if if only 50 people support this project at the base level, mm-hmm. money is that? Was that total? And set that as your goal. If Let's say if you think you get 50 people. If you think you only get 20 people, set it, set your goal there. And right. uh, it's it's really, the math is, is pretty straightforward. I, I see the biggest mistake people could make would be to set some outrageously high goal and i've I've always been you know conservative or modest with my goals Mm -hmm. so and when we say conservative we're talking about a thousand bucks two thousand bucks something like that or less uh it depends on your audience and depends on what your and what your price points are for me my mine was 3500 okay um i think i actually saw for jay stevens um dwellings comic it was like 800 bucks something like that yeah whatever 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 you need to to me i was thinking about one of my tiers is a Mm t-shirt and the big worry would be that i hit the goal and i only had an order for one t-shirt and i still would have to make 50 of them and so basically all the other backers would be supporting me just to print increasing my wardrobe you know (laughs) so I, I, factoring in the cost of all the other things you'd have to make if if they if they signed up for like stretch goals and things like that or bonus rewards or pins. To me, it was the pins and the T-shirts that would become the concern that if I don't reach this number, uh, you know, then it becomes then, then I'm going to be losing money. Um, so so that's how I factored in. It wasn't just the book. If if it had been just the book, I could have set the goal much lower. Right. But it's not. I mean, but people really want these things, right? They want they want the pins, they want the T-shirts, they want all the ephemera that kind of comes with the project. Is that have you found that to be the case? Especially with this one, because the a sounding space world. Argosy Smith had a pretty good logo. Yeah, probably the best the best logo I've come up with. And uh, I tried to re, I tried to recreate some of that magic with Sir Quimp, but it doesn't quite work with the middle age kind of. Oh, I love the middle age logo, and I and it, self promotional plug here i love the one you did for green screen which is my project you know it's great no you got a great knack for it man i I love the middle age logo i think it's great but astounding space thrills is also just you know it's riveting it's wonderful and 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 argosy smith has this kind of emblem on his chest and so the t-shirt for that was something that i sold back in the day and people liked it i don't know they might not even like the comic but they like the shirt and so great shirt great shirt yep and so the hope is that it was a, so that was the main concern that I have enough that the, the price is high enough to make that happen. And then I'm going to do enamel pins and things. Like that. I do think I can sell those later on as well. So fingers crossed. 
at cons or on your website or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so uh, so you do that, and then you had to, on top of that, you have your goals. You produce your your promotional video. Um, have you found like that a certain approach is necessary in the video? What do you have to tell people in in that video in order to get them interested in a pro in a project? Um, well, I've I've heard from from Kickstarter itself that they they want they like short videos they favor short videos under two minutes. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of content, I basically feel like nobody knows who I am, and I need to introduce myself to them. So I put up things like the award nomination logos that hey, this is award nominated cartoonist, and I flash the logos on the screen. No, the Muggles of the world don't know what a Rubin Award is, or what an Eagle Award is, or what an Eagle Award was. Mm -hmm. But having that logo on there, you know, briefly helps leverage mm -hmm. some credibility. Yeah. Uh, and, and then a picture of what the book, a mock-up of what the book will look like. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Because it's important for them to see the thing that, what am I getting for this? I felt like that was a weakness of the current Mystery Science Theater campaign, where my first visit to it, I felt like, I'm not sure what you're getting for your support. And I, so I, I think it's important to show what you're getting for your support. So if you're going to have pins, in my previous campaigns, I showed the T-shirt, I showed the buttons, I showed that stuff. This is the first campaign where I've actually put myself in front of the camera because I really felt like this needed a softer, a more impassioned sell because this is such a weird old project of mine that I wanted to put myself in front of the camera. And I've gotten a little more experience in front of the camera because I've been doing YouTube videos, kind of That's just right. talking about about web comics and web comic shop talk and with and, my and folks you should check out steve's youtube videos because they are excellent by the way uh youtube steve it's steve conley on youtube is that is that what we're looking for oh, or or if you go to i think i got the domain name web comic shop talk oh and cool think, and i think if you go there it web comic shop talk okay yeah. i'm i'm cheating right now and, and checking my own domain name to see if that's okay. right well i've watched a couple of those videos and they're chock full of great information for people who who uh, who need some some guidance in their cartooning career um steve's putting it out there for free so go to youtube and check it out and the, and the thought with that was like what you were saying with uh with the pandemic of uh, missing conventions and missing hanging mm -hmm. out with other cartoonists where this was a chance to feel a little bit of that again. And with that experience, with getting comfortable in front of the camera and a little comfort with editing, I thought, okay, I'm gonna put myself in my video for my, uh, for my, uh, uh, for my Kickstarter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. And, and I've, I've noticed a lot, a lot of folks do that. So you've got your video, you've got, and you're showing your product and the mock-up that you're talking about, did you like, you know, print one copy of the book um, to have it on hand or did you just, you know, put together something, you know, ad hoc? Say, can you say that again? Did you print a co have one copy printed like a, a you know, um, a, a test copy printed from somebody to to get one copy of the book to show them online on the video? Uh, no, that image on screen is a is a is a Photoshop mock up. Oh, OK. OK, you know, no, because I don't know the number of pages. And right. because I'll be publishing this, uh, it needs an ISBN. Right. And with the ISBN, that's, you know, you tend to need to know the number of pages up front, things like that. So 
knowing that one of the stretch goals was going to be additional pages and I wouldn't have my page count just yet, a mock-up was more important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or at least more more useful than... I would love to have had a hard copy to show people uh, to hold up during the video, but... Uh, so do you really need the USBN, the ISBN rather? Um, because you're you're selling these through Kickstarter, you only really, really need them to sell retail. Isn't that right? It, depending on the printer you use oh okay in the case of the printer i use they require an isbn okay and well, that makes sense. so yeah so so that was it and if you publish it you know if you publish through amazon's kdp you can you, they'll supply you with a uh, isbn uh if you go to publish it through a print on demand like a kablam they don't require that so right. it really depends on the, the printer you use so it's a, it's a requirement of my printer well and and it's kind of good because you know if you are going to sell it retail at any point in the future say you got some orders from you know a retailer um you want to have that isbn on there uh you know have you by the way you know th now this is a question have comics retailers ever reached out to to uh purchase copies of the books some have my margins aren't really good enough to do that i mean i will sell it to them at cost but uh, uh but my but uh but my margins aren't really great for that. It, it, yeah. th as far as I'm concerned, the hardcovers are bought from me, you mm -hmm. know, and I will sign each copy. Uh, same thing will go for the Astounding Space Thrills collection. I'll mm -hmm. sign each and every copy. And if someone orders it from my website, it comes directly from me. Mm -hmm. uh, soft covers are available through Amazon or, you know, soft cover of the AST collection will be available from Amazon sometime well after the campaign. But if anybody wants a hardcover, they got to get from my website or from me at a convention. Right. So, um, so I got two questions then um, that, that I think would be of interest to, again, other folks who are thinking about doing Kickstarter, um, myself included, <laughs> but actually I, th I think it's useful information. Um, so you identify stretch goals and how do you go about identifying stretch goals and the, 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 what do you call it? The, um, not the price breaks, but the amount that, you know, at each stretch goal and what's going to be available with that stretch goal. Is that, is there a method to that madness or is it just something that you kind of do by feel? It's a little bit by feel. It is a little bit based on the experience I've had with some stretch goals. My very first Kickstarter was printing a book, a fairly large book, but one of the stretch goals I included was an 11 by 17 print, which mm. suddenly made the packages a lot bigger. Yeah. That was a huge mistake. Um, and so since then, I've learned quite a bit. Also, um, my, for my last Kickstarter for Middle Age Volume 2, a couple of my international backers from Europe got hit with duties and taxes beyond what they were expecting. I, it might have been their first Kickstarter supporting because they, they seemed quite surprised but they, that they were charged any import fees. Uh, and that's a pain. And part of that is when you're filling out the customs form for your the packages that go out, you have to declare a value. And based on that value, they will be taxed. Wow. And a lot of international backers know that, you know, they're buying very expensive board games and, you mm -hmm. know, Dungeons and Dragons volumes, things like that. But, uh, but because of that, I've thought of, I've, 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 I'm leaning much more toward digital rewards and very small rewards that I will, which, which those things I include as gifts now so I'm, I'm basically the stretch goals are not they're just bonus things that i'm giving you and you're going to support the book so that that will hopefully keep the, the overall value of the package down and people won't be socked with an additional bill um 
Right. So, so, and what happens? Do you ever? I mean, you know, I'm going to whisper this, but do you ever undervalue the package when you're mailing? No, it? no, no, no. I, I, I kind of people say, oh, just label the whole thing as a gift, and I'm like, dude, that, you know, that that's just asking for trouble. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I much rather, and also because this in this particular case with this Kickstarter, which I had no idea if it was going to get any interest whatsoever. Uh, digital rewards was were key because I didn't want to increase my cost. Mm-hmm. And I, there really isn't a new thing that I'm printing for the campaign until it got to a certain threshold where I was including a tiny pinback button. Mm-hmm. Again, it weighs almost nothing. And then the next one, which we're very close, is a uh, reprint of the, the Hildebrandt Brothers cover. Yeah. And that will be a, a six by nine print. Comic and again, yeah, uh, pretty close to, and yeah. and the idea would be it's nice and, and a beautiful print, and it's smaller than the dimensions of the book, weighs almost nothing, won't increase my packaging costs, won't increase the the shipping weight by much, and th- those are real factors about just just shipping because what people who haven't done the Kickstarter before don't realize is that the shipping cost is included in the total amount raised, so when you see that a campaign out there raised a million dollars. Mm-hmm. A good hundred and fifty thousand of that is shipping costs. Yeah, sure. Shipping is really expensive, especially now. Yeah, it might it might even be more than that. It might be like a third of the cost. And then, and then on top of it, Kickstarter and the credit card companies take ten percent, which is fair right. for what they're doing. But the problem is they're also taking a portion of the shipping. So if it's yeah. going to cost you twenty dollars to ship, and you charge someone twenty dollars to ship, you suddenly only have eighteen dollars to pay that twenty dollar bill. Right. So you have to increase your shipping costs for international packages by 11, 12% just so it zeroes out and you have enough money to pay for shipping without dipping into your own pocket. Wow. So how do you, okay. So, you know, this is a very practical question, but how do you calculate shipping costs? Does Kickstarter help you do that based on the size of the packages? Like say Etsy does, you know, if you have the size of the packages, they give you an estimate of shipping costs, although I don't know quite how accurate those are. But nevertheless, I mean, how do you calculate your shipping costs? And and I think one of the things you've alluded to here is that you try to keep the package relatively small and the weight relatively small so that it doesn't cost a heck of a lot to ship it all over the world. Yeah, uh, well, I, Kickstarter does not have a built-in calculator. And okay. I find that if you're going to calculate your shipping look at a project that's got a similar size to yours and use their numbers mm-hmm. and just presume that by the time you ship your package depending on how quickly you ship it the price may go up mm-hmm. you can't really predict it accurately because it can change on a moment's notice yeah um, my last kickstarter because it was cap was supposed to be shipped in 2020 because of the pandemic it, it took 11 10 to 12 more months for some of the packages to get out the door after which all the postal woes and i found myself trying to I mean, I didn't want to go to the post office around election day because the place was mobbed or uh, I mean, it just got really challenging Then around the holidays and the prices went up, especially for commercial packages. And anyway, look at I would say look at other packages that are similar to what you're doing. Um, uh, media mail is available for anything that's just a book. Mm-hmm. So but I play it completely above board. If I have to add a pin to the package, suddenly mm-hmm. it's going first class. Mm-hmm. because media mail is just for books uh so yeah, yeah. anyone who orders at the just the book level i will probably ship media mail um but for me media mail is also like a, i found the a vendor 
who sells perfect size boxes. I bubble wrap everything. Yeah. Yeah. I've I got my middle aged books wrapped, you know, beautifully wrapped in perfect size boxes and with bubble wrap and all of that stuff. It was really great. It was like it was coming from, you know, a major boutique retailer or something. It was so nice. I, I was it, like, wow, this is great. Man, if someone's paying twenty five dollars for a book, I really want it to arrive in good shape. It's yeah. Uh, so well and i think that care you know communicates it goes a long way i mean this goes a long way too i think what comes across in the steve conley philosophy if you will is is this care you know care for the the consumer care for the reader uh care you know this you put yourself out there and you put the best of yourself out there in your work and in your packaging and everything to offer your reader who's supporting you you know, the best that you can do and, and which is quite good indeed. And, you know, and, and that comes across and the same thing comes across, you know, when I got the package in the mail, it's like, wow, this is, this is just so nice. And it felt like you gave consideration to the package that I was going to receive and make sure that everything in it is, is safe and sound. And I, I, I include a personalized note. I know I don't need to do that, but I'd say it's one of these things where it's like, if I don't care about this, how can I expect anybody else to? And that's that's kind of how I approach the whole thing. If I don't care about every part of this, I don't I don't know how I dare ask anyone else to. <laughs> well, you know, I, and I think that that attitude when we're talking about philosophy, you know, um, in comics, and it, that attitude comes through in what you're doing and everything, you know, and in the comic too. I think you know, just the care you take with all of the details throughout. Uh, you know, it's just uh it it just reveals you know a certain set of standards but it also reveals more about a generosity i think uh of spirit that comes across in the work and uh and it comes right out also you know in something as simple as packaging you know um generosity of spirit i think that steve is is something that marks everything that you do uh you can you you can uh, I'm not good at that uh, at receiving that stuff, but I, I very much appreciate. It. I'm trying to get better at it. I'm trying to be an, uh, oh, more gracious, that. even even trying to be more great. But I really, really appreciate it. It's very, it's very kind of you. Well, but it's true, man. And and you know, I mean, I'm flipping through, you know, volume one here in front of me. And anybody who is not, if you've not gone to steveconley.com and checked out the Middle Age, you are really in for a treat. And Astounding Space Thrills is equally beautiful, and I can't wait to see it in print. Uh, and I, I think that's just one of the things. What, just going by the quality of this book and the, the beauty and the care with which it is done. You know, you know here's something that, that struck me, too, in, in this book is how well, you know, you formatted the work so that it reads as a webcomic one you know, segment at a time, but how well it also reads as a whole book and how well it comes together in terms of book design. All of that, you know, is really just wonderful. I mean, it, it, it m works in multiple formats, um, as, as though you had the foresight to see it in all of those multiple formats, right from the beginning. Well, they were, they, I mean, it was, it was a, it was planned that it would be collected. And I, I feel like that, I think we might've talked about this last time where there is a cadence to each episode. Mm -hmm. And I think about it as, I mean, 
it's one it's one thing to write an individual episode as a joke and as a standalone thing and treat it as a standalone thing that a, might, a new reader might stumble upon as an entryway into the rest of the story. But I have to read it in the context of the episodes which came before it and always making sure that as I'm lettering and as I'm writing it, that I always read it so that the flow happens so that the, there isn't this kind of monotonous cadence mm-hmm. we talk about. So it doesn't feel like each episode doesn't feel like a, a knock knock joke and that you're getting 10 knock knock jokes in a row. It has to go from being, you know, I have to propel the reader forward with the story. I have to push the the plot. I have to make it funny. And I have to make sure that it's a twist from the previous episode. So yeah, if yeah. one episode goes high, the next one's got to go low. And that 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 way, when they are read, when they're binged later on, or even if they're binged on my website, that it you don't get to the point where you go I've I've seen this a million times. Well, you never feel that the the story always moves forward, and I think this is one of the things that's really difficult to achieve. You know, in a web comic that's an adventure story, is the idea that you're propelling the story forward with every single episode, but every single episode feels complete enough that a reader feels satisfied. You know, having read that one episode. Um, with green screen, I haven't done that. I I've conceived of it totally as a comic book, uh, which again points to, you know, well, one, no forethought (laughs) really, but also, you know, where my age is, where my head is at, you know, although it's funny, I, I did comic strips for, you know, for 10 years, but, um, now, you know, when I went back to a longer form story, I immediately just thought in terms of that. Of, of that form, the comic book form, without thinking about how it was going to appear on the web and on webtoons or someplace where you're going to actually build an audience. And it's really easy not to do that, you know, not to think of of the reader on the web who's ex- who needs that kind of, first they need that sense of satisfaction at the end of an episode, but they also need that that, that satisfaction plus the pull to come back is really important. And the idea that the story moves forward. And when you put it all in a collection, it's somehow got to read in a way that doesn't feel stilted, you know, like you're, you're at, you're starting and stopping, you know, at every, that there's a stoplight at every 10 feet on the road. Right. And you got to be clear not to use the same words, you know, from one episode to the next. Like if, if someone calls our hero quimp one episode, they can't. I, I don't. I, it can't be that constant repetition. Like you want to introduce readers to their names of the characters if they're coming in cold, but that's. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the Blade of Woe has multiple names was mm-hmm. partly to solve the problem of I don't want this to be monotonous to read. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's you know and it works really well. But I think that just goes to the show. You know, there's a certain level of craft involved in the. Um, in the episodic format as well, you know, and, uh, and it, it can, it's very tricky, you know, it can be very tricky. And, um, and I don't know, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things that's subtle, but, but again, really important and crucial, I think, to the success of a web comic. And, and I guess these days it's probably best, you know, instead of thinking about it as a comic book immediately, it's probably better to think about it as a web comic first and a comic or a collected format second, you know? Um, although I'm not sure you, you have to think of them as both things simultaneously, I guess. 
Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I, that's how I think of them. I think of them and uh, how's this going to work on Webtoons? How's this going to work on my website? How's this going to work in a book later on? Uh, and occasionally I will punt about how it will work in the book later on. And I will m- make a decision that will work for the website and for Webtoons, knowing later on that before this goes into print, I have to make a tweak or two. Yeah. Yeah, well, and right, because, you know, and it's okay to do that, you know, because, again, you're offering your reader now the collected version, but the collected version's got something a little bit different, you know, from what they've read online. It's formatted a little differently, or there's additional things, or there's some words that are different. So, you know, I mean, that's all, that's part of it, you know, that's part of what makes it viable and worthwhile. Anyway, uh, so here we are again, two hours later. Um and, you know, I've, I'm like, wait a minute. Did we talk about everything we need to talk about? Have we mentioned the Kickstarter? I don't know. Let's talk about the Kickstarter. So where is the Kickstarter? What's where, How will we find the Kickstarter? Oh, if people go to AstoundingSpaceThrills.com slash Kickstarter, it will pop right up. All right. Excellent. AstoundingSpaceThrills, one word, dot com slash Kickstarter. Is that right? That's right. That's what you said. Okay. So folks, even though this is, even though Astounding Space Thrills is already met its goals, that doesn't mean that your support is not welcome. It certainly is. And it will just help not only open up more stretch goals, but more pages to the book. And it will also um, just put in your hands a beautiful, a beautiful book of these great adventure strips, sci-fi adventure strips from the early days of the intranet and the web, the worldwide web, I'll have you know. <laughs> beginnings of the web comic era. This is a classic of the beginnings of the web comic era, astounding space thrills. And uh, and it really is. I mean, I sound, you know, somewhat sarcastic there, but I'm not being sarcastic. It's a great piece of work. We were amazed at it. You know, I was amazed at it. I was just astounded by it way back in the day. And, uh, you know, it was... It, blew me away then and i can't wait to see it now and um <laughs> you know so i'm keeping my fingers crossed like when will it be printed steve when will when will i have that in my greedy little hands uh, it's going to be printed in july there's no, there's like no there will be no lag on this one as soon as uh, after kickstarter is finished it takes about two weeks for them to transfer your 90 percent of whatever the total was okay. and then i can order the books the awesome. artwork is done the only decision will have to be made will be uh, how the additional material I'm adding to the back of it based on if we reach that next stretch goal and formatting that material. But other than that, the file is pretty much ready to go. That's great. Oh man. That's so, so great. Wonderful. So, uh, Steve Conley, thank you so much for being here again. Um, it's been great to talk to you and, uh, about everything life and <laughs> comics in general and uh, i hope the audience finds it as as engaging as i did and i hope i didn't go on too long i think i'm gonna have to go through and edit my my pontificating out uh, this little... was the best this was the best hour of podcasting anyone's ever heard i think i could say well it, and that says something because it was actually two <laughs> hours <laughs> i know that's what i mean but just leave just just well just just leave the part where i said it was an hour and just cut out all the, yeah. the rambling the, all the digressions all the digressions yeah maybe i will uh but anyway it was it was great steve it was a lot of fun and um and always i'm looking forward to the work because it's just so so great so it's a visual delight and um that's what i'm looking forward to can't wait to dig into it 
Thank you so much, Jeff. Oh, thank you, man. So we shall hopefully we will have you again on sometime in the near future for the next Kickstarter, I suppose. That would be great. All right. Take care, man. So I don't know what you're going to make of all of that. <laughs> that was that was one heck of a conversation, uh, and, and it really brought up a lot of issues that are of interest, ongoing interest, and that will not be decided here. <laughs> but, they, you know, it's, it's something to think about, and uh, pretty cool. Anyway, um, uh, all of those things. But uh, what's even greater is, like, now we've got a template for how to make a, a successful Kickstarter. And, so uh, as soon as I get, you know, something going here, I'm, I'm going to give it a try. Uh, and that reminds me, you can follow me at Greenscreen Comic on Instagram or uh, at Spiking the Lens. I'm also at, at Grogan Jeff uh, on Instagram, but that's getting confusing. So too many Instagram accounts. But right now I'm working on a comic I want you to follow, and it's called Greenscreen. So at Greenscreen Comic on Instagram, okay? Also, hey, I've got a Patreon account, uh, and if you want to support this podcast, uh, that's a great way to do it. Head on over to patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Look for me. Uh, kick in whatever you can. Boy, oh, boy, that is appreciated. It puts a smile on my face and uh, helps pay for a lot of the things that you would be surprised you have to get to run a podcast. So uh, big help there. And uh, But, hey, if you can't do that, that's cool. I understand. And uh, But, hey... You might want to just uh, write a review, give a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's a big help. It draws visitors, uh, draws people to the podcast, and uh, maybe somebody wants to listen, and they might pick up on Steve Conley and head on over and help Steve. So that's a that's great, you know, uh, all, all for one and one for all, right? And I'm always looking for more subscribers on Webtoons, Canvas, and Tapas. So uh, that's where you can read Green Screen as well. And, um... Every time I've got to do a checklist because I can't, you know, to write this stuff down. I'm supposed to talk about the Instagram. I'm supposed to get you to follow the web web comic uh, and all of the other stuff. Uh, I will be running my own Kickstarter this summer, so I'll have more info about that coming up. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, green screen, which number two, which is actually now green screen number one. <laughs> the green screen number one is now zero zero. Uh, is actually, I'm really excited about it. I, I think it turned out really well. I've finished 36 pages of the comic, all in full color. Uh, I'm working on some of the covers now, and then I'll put the Kickstarter together. Sometime this summer, it'll be up and running, so I'll let you know for sure. You, you'll hear it here first. So so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But in the meantime, you'll have to make do with Steve Conley's Kickstarter at AstoundingSpaceThrills.com um, and look for Steve uh, at AstoundingSpaceThrills.com slash Kickstarter, okay? Hey, if you're over at Kickstarter, be sure to check out Jan Stive's work, Dunce, Good Boy of the Year. That's another great Kickstarter from an old friend of the show. So be sure to look for that. And uh, if you're on Instagram and you're looking for great stuff, Hot Flashes and Hangovers by Teresa Henry. And Steve Ogden's Doc and the Death Bot, Steve Ogden art. Be sure to look for that. That's another great comic I've been reading on Instagram. So be sure to look for Steve Ogden art. That's Steve O-G-D-E-N-R. A-R-T, and it's Doc and the Deathbot. Be sure to look for that. 
Okay, I've said my piece. I think I'm done. It's time for me to go get out of here. I got a lot of stuff to do today. I got to get back to the drawing board, work some more on green screen so I can bring great entertainment to you guys as well as uh, hunt down another interviewee. So, uh, all right, I'm out of here. It's been great talking to you. Great having Steve here. Hope you're having a good day wherever you are. And as always, thanks for listening.